Good morning, River City. My name is Bran. I'm one of the pastors here. Grateful to get to worship with you this morning. If you are new or visiting, like Andy said, love to get to know you. I'd love to help you get plugged into the community. And again, like Andy said, small groups is a great way to do that. So we'd love to invite you to one. Uh, my family, we've been going to the Burkhart groups. It's been vetted. It's great. Uh, you're welcome at that one. They're all solid, though. So you can, you can go to whichever one you deem good. So anyways, uh, excited as well. Continue our series in the Gospel of John together. But if you've been gone or you're just visiting us for the first time, it's, it's really helpful to know, it's important to understand that, that like the other three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, uh, John's Gospel is kind of like a, a story that tells, the, tells about the life and ministry of Jesus. But John's Gospel is really unique. It's really different than the other three. He totally ignores all kinds of things the other three focus on, and he gives us a bunch of new, kind of never-before-seen footage or details about Jesus' life and ministry. And what we've seen from the beginning is that the reason for those differences has everything to do with the audience that John's writing to. You see, John's writing his gospel about 20 or 30 years after the other ones have been written, and he's writing it from a place that was kind of a Christian hub in the world at the time. And so the audience that John has in mind aren't people who've never heard about Jesus. In large part, the audience John has in mind are people who've grown up hearing about him, people who've, uh, who had access to other gospel writer accounts of his life and ministry, people who'd heard about Jesus from their parents or grandparents, but people whose own lives weren't being transformed by Jesus themselves. You see, they were kind of just riding the spiritual coattails of their parents. And what John understands is the reality is that familiarity with Jesus is not the same thing as a saving relationship with him. And so at the heart of John's gospel, what he's trying to do throughout his work here is that he's trying to wake people up from this kind of insufficient head-level familiarity with Jesus because he wants to show them the spectacular, captivating, eternity-altering version of who Jesus really is. Because what he's after is like he wants this transformation to happen. He wants their kind of lifeless, head-level knowledge about Jesus to become this life-transforming, heart-level faith in him that's really changing their lives now and forever so that's what John's after, and that's why he's writing the things he does the way he does. And what we've seen throughout the first kind of half of our study so far is that one of the primary ways John tries to wake us up to the reality of Jesus and who he really is is by recounting a number of the miracles that he did. John deliberately, though, he refers to them as signs because they're kind of like billboards on the highway. They're meant to point us to something ahead about who Jesus is and what he came to do. And last week, John 11, we saw Jesus' greatest sign yet, right? He raises his friend Lazarus from the dead, right? And he's revealing himself not just as the sustainer of life, but he's showing himself to be the source of life itself. And, and we see him calling Mary and the rest of us, calling us to faith, putting our faith in him as our only hope for life now and for life in the future, life after death. As we begin the second half of John's gospel this morning, we're going we're to see John doing is highlighting the way a number of people respond. The way a number of people respond to Jesus' signs. And at the heart of what John's trying to do in our passage is to give us a picture of what it looks like when you see and believe the truth about who Jesus has revealed himself to be and what it looks like when you don't. You see, what I want to show you as we study this morning is that real faith, true faith, the kind of faith that John is writing this whole gospel so that people would have, it's marked by a life that demonstrates the surpassing worth of Jesus. You see, in other words, when, when you see Jesus for who he really is, when you see him as the resurrection and the life, when you see him as the great I am, 
What's going to happen is that you're going to be characterized by living in a way that shows he's more valuable to you than anything else. See, and with that in mind, let's pray. We'll dive into the passage this morning. Such a good one. I can't wait to show it to you. So, Jesus, thanks so much for you and for your word and for gathering us together this morning. As we come again to take a look at John's gospel, we pray, Jesus, that you might help, uh, just like increasingly, wherever we're at this morning, that you might continue to wake us up to the reality of who Jesus really is, that you might help us to see him more clearly, more rightly, that you might help us to see him for, just like to see him in all his beauty and glory. And God, we need you for that. I, I can't do that. I can't make that happen, but you can, God. And so we ask God for our good and so that we might worship you and live for you and, and, and that we might glorify you with your lives. Would you help us to see Jesus rightly? We pray. Amen. All right, well, this morning we're going to be in John chapter 11, uh, verse 45, in the beginning of chapter 12 here. Read this way. Therefore, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did, that's raising Lazarus from the dead, right? They believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and they told them what Jesus had done. And the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. What are we accomplishing, they asked. Here's this man performing many signs. And if we let him go on like this, then everyone will believe in him. Then the Romans will come and they'll take away both our temple and our nation. One of them, named Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, he spoke up, You know nothing at all. Do you not realize that it's better for one man to die for the people than the whole nation to perish? And he did not say this on his own, but as the high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation, and not only for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God to bring them together and to make them one. And so from that day on, they plotted to take his life. Six days before the Passover... Jesus came to Bethany again here, where the Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead, if you were wondering which Lazarus it was, right? Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Mary served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. And Mary, she took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But one of the disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It's worth a year's wages. And he didn't say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And as keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. Meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there, and they came not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. And so the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well. For on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and believing in him. Well, I don't know about you, but um, I really enjoy listening to podcasts. And um, I remember a number of years ago, there was one that I remember really enjoying listening to called Startup. And podcasts kind of followed entrepreneurs as they started new businesses. Shocker, right? And one of the key parts that happens in, as they followed each one of these entrepreneurs as they start a new business, right, is this part where they have to gather investors to back them, right? So you have a great idea, but you have something you want to build or create or whatever it is, but you don't have the necessary resources to accomplish it, right? It's like an entrepreneur, most of the time you are idea rich and resource poor, right? 
And so you call up all the people that you think have lots of money and you invite them to invest in your company. And essentially what you're doing is selling a part of your company, like a stake in your company to to investors. And so the obvious question that everyone's asking, that everyone has to ask in that process is, so how much is this company that doesn't actually exist yet, how much is that company worth? How much is it really worth? In the business world, uh, the term is called valuation. And the reality is that what an investor is willing to spend or invest has everything to do with the valuation that they place on that company, how much they think it's worth. At this point, some of you are like, that is a really cool story. What does any of that have to do with our passage this morning, right? Well, a lot, because the the through line in our passage is John's painting this picture for us of a bunch of different people's valuations of Jesus. And we see four different valuations of Jesus' worth in our passage. We see the religious leader's valuation of him. We see Mary's valuation. We see Judas's, And finally, at the end, we see Jesus' valuation of himself. That first valuation of Jesus we see in the passage, it comes from the religious leaders. Right? Jesus, just again, he's just raised Lazarus from the dead. He's revealing himself as the, the true Messiah. God himself has come to rescue and redeem his people from the enemies of Satan and sin and death. Right? And, and the passage is bookended by these verses that highlight how, in response to seeing and hearing about the signs that Jesus is doing, that many people are coming over and believing in him. They're following him. But John tells us that that's not how the Jewish religious leaders are responding to that. Right, verse 53, it says, from that day on, the day they met, met about it, heard about it, right, they, they plotted to take his life. You see, in their eyes, Jesus was worthless. Right? In spite of all that he'd done, like the pastor had, they're not even denying the signs. They just refuse to believe what they have to say. Right? In spite of all Jesus' repeated efforts to help them see the truth about who he is, all that he'd come to do, their hearts are hard towards him. To them, Jesus was a problem to be dealt with, not a prize to be treasured. And the reason they saw him that way is because they saw Jesus as, the reason he's so worthless to them is because he's the thing that's actually standing in the way that they think is standing in the way of the thing they really want, the thing that they value the most, right? Verse 48, if we let him go on like this, everyone's going to believe in him, and then the Romans will come, and they'll take away both our temple and our nation. The temple and the nation, those things, they represented for the religious leaders their power and influence and prestige. That's their reputation. That's their authority. The thing they value most, the thing they're most afraid of losing, is their own positions of power and influence. And their fear is that people are actually going to believe in Jesus as the Messiah, and they're gonna, that's going to set up this uprising against their Roman occupiers. And if there's one thing you know about Roman history, it's that the one thing Rome does not tolerate is uprisings. Right? You can believe what you want, you can do what you want, I do not care as long as you do it on your own and you're quiet about it. The moment an uprising starts, the hammer comes down for Rome. If that happened, the power and influence that these Jewish leaders had been given for what meaningful ways it was, that was going to be ripped from their hands. And because those are the things that they value the most, they're willing to destroy anyone and anything that gets in the way of it, including God himself. So that's the first valuation of Jesus. That's not the only one, right? The next one we see in the passage could not be more different than theirs. Chapter 12 begins with Jesus. He's attending this dinner, 
and it's hosted in his honor. honor. We see Mary and Martha and their recently resurrected brother Lazarus are all there. But it's not just any meal, right? It's the one being held in his He's the guest of honor. He's the center of attention. He's the one that they're all focused on. So let me point this out. Not the resurrected guy. Lazarus is just sitting there. He is not the center of attention. Jesus is. The resurrection giver is the one who the focus is on. I just, this is a side note here, but it is so interesting to me that John never tells us anything about what Lazarus thought about getting resurrected. He does not give us his point of view. He does not give us literally any detail about Lazarus's thought at all. And I think that's real deliberate. Because what John wants our eyes to be fixed on, like everyone else at this meal, is Jesus. See, and no one at that party's eyes were more fixed on Jesus than Mary because no one saw him as clearly as she did. Verse 3 tells us she took a, about a pint of pure nard, a very expensive perfume. She poured it out on his feet and wiped his hair, wiped his feet with her hair. And I could preach an entire sermon on that one verse alone because there is a lot going on there. But suffice it to say, this is an act of extravagant sacrifice and humility and devotion. Right, Mary takes this jar of very expensive perfume. Right, We learn verse 5, it's worth an entire year's wages. Right, which no matter how much you make, that's a lot. Right? I don't know if anyone you can imagine loving someone so much that you go out and buy them a present worth your entire year's salary. Right? Like, I really love my wife. I am not about to do that. Right? That's not, it's not happening. Right? See, all the commentators note that unless her family was unbelievably wealthy... This would have easily been the most valuable thing that they own. Not only that, we read in Matthew and Mark's Gospels that the perfume is stored in this alabaster jar, which means that it's almost certainly a, a family heirloom that's being passed down, but not like a decoration you stick on the mantle. More like a family heirloom that's like the source of their family's financial security. You see, the, the, this time in the world is just constant, all kinds of turmoil, and everything changed all the time. And there were all kinds of wars and all kinds of famines and all kinds of things that would happen. And so there would often be situations where families stuck without ways to make money. And this perfume, this family heirloom, that was their source of security, that when they couldn't provide for themselves, they could sell that, and they wouldn't have to starve. And so when the people saw her bringing out this incredibly important, valuable perfume, you can guarantee what they were thinking is, wow, what an honor for Jesus that she would give him a few drops of that. How important he must be. You see, but Mary doesn't just pour a few drops on, of it on Jesus. John tells us she pours it on him. Matthew and Mark, they tell us that she broke the jar. She takes the most precious, most valuable, most important thing she owns, and she pours it all out on Jesus' feet. Not on his head, note, right? On his feet. Right? I don't know about you, feet are kind of nasty, right? And you and I don't live in the Middle East where it's hot all the time, right? And where there's like, Jesus' day, there's no paved roads, right? Like everybody's wearing like hipster chacos all around, all the time, right? And there's no paved roads, there's just dirt everywhere, and there's no socks, right? It's just like, people's feet were nasty. Touching somebody's feet in the ancient world, it was considered to be this unbelievably demeaning and humiliating thing. It was something only the lowliest of servants would be asked to do. In fact, the rabbis at the time, they taught that, that touching people's feet, that, that was something you could only force a slave to do. 
And yet here Mary kneels at Jesus' feet, not only touches them with her hands, we see her wiping Jesus' feet with her hair, which every commentator notes would have been not only humiliating, but scandalous. You see, Jewish women never let down their hair in public. It was the sign of intense intimacy and closeness and openness. And you only did that with the people who were very closest to you that you trusted most. And so Mary's actions here, they're this bold proclamation that she absolutely does not care what anyone else thinks. Right? There is no act of devotion to Jesus that is beneath her dignity. There is no price she is unwilling to pay to show her loyalty and love for him. See, what she is saying about Jesus with her actions, what she's saying to him, Jesus, you are worthy of all I have and all I am. Everything, Jesus, you are everything, the very best I have to give you. You're worthy of all of it and more. You see, Mary's valuation of Jesus' worth, right, you can't put a number on it for her. His value, is, his value to her is incalculable. Right? He is supremely valuable to her. You see, but that's not how everyone at that dinner thought. Other gospel writers, they record how all the disciples, not just Judas, all of them were shocked. The, the word the other gospel writers use is indignant to describe how they responded to Mary's actions. But here John focuses specifically on Judas's response. Verse 4 and 5, Judas objected. And he said, why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It's worth a year's wages, right? Judas looks at Mary's extravagant, sacrificial, humble devotion and worship to Jesus. And he just says, what a waste. What a waste. We could have sold that. We could have done something with it way more valuable than just pouring it out on Jesus. And that sounds really noble, right? Until you read verse 6 and you find out Judas did not care about the poor at all. It was just a cover up for the fact that he was a thief, right? And that he would take the money out of the bag for himself and use it for himself. See, the truth is that what Judas valued most wasn't Jesus, it was money. And the whole reason he's following Jesus around is because he thought that, the, that following Jesus, the kingdom Jesus was going to be bringing, that it was a physical, earthly kingdom, and that nearness to him was going to mean wealth and influence and prosperity for him. And pretty quickly in the next couple of days, when that reality comes crashing down on him, and it becomes very clear that it's not the kind of kingdom Jesus is bringing, Judas is all too willing to sell Jesus out for a mere 30 pieces of silver. A jar a perfume that Mary willingly gives is worth thousands of times more than that. You see, for Judas, Jesus is just a means to an end. He's a commodity to be traded for his own benefit. He's a pawn that he's all too willing to give up for the thing he's really after. And his response to Mary's evaluation of Jesus, what it reveals is that his love of money has blinded him to the reality of Jesus' true worth. See, that's something that Jesus confirms for us in the following verses. See, we don't just see the Pharisees and Mary's and Judas's valuation of Jesus. We see what Jesus thinks about his own worth. Right, he tells us in verse 7 and 8, he tells Judas, leave her alone. You'll always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. What Jesus is not doing is demeaning those who are poor and saying they don't matter and they're not worth anything. Everything else that Jesus says and writes and does about the poor shows us the exact opposite. That's not what's going on here. Instead, what Jesus is saying 
is that he is more valuable than anyone else. When you compare anyone to him, he is more valuable than all of it combined. You see, and to know him and to see him and to hear him and to touch him and to be with him, to know Jesus is infinitely valuable. And when you understand that, you'll see that as Mary, that Mary has valued him rightly. Right? Judas looks at Mary's lavish worship as this extravagant waste, and yet Jesus looks at it. Right? And he doesn't say, oh, oh, you shouldn't have, that's too much. Jesus looks at her lavish, extravagant worship. And without a hint of pride or arrogance, Jesus says, this is appropriate. This is not too much for me. See, Mary sees what I'm really worth. She sees me rightly. So Jesus, he, aver- he affirms Mary's evaluation of himself. Right? And John's wanting us to see that's the right value. See, Mary got it right. She saw Jesus rightly. And the question that we're left with is, how, how do you value Jesus like that? Right? If Mary's being lifted up for us as this, the, the right valuation of Jesus, if she's got it right, the question is, how do you value Jesus like that? That seems insane. The answer Jesus tells us is found in verse 7. See, it was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. See, the only way that you value Jesus like Mary does, the only way you see him as supremely valuable, is not just when you see that he can raise the dead, but it's when you see and when you believe that he's died for you. You see, last week we talked about how Lazarus' resurrection and the story there was not just a story about his death back to life. It was very, in a very real way, it was the story of Jesus' life that led to his death. You see, this was the last straw for the religious leaders. They would take no more. In their eyes now, Jesus had to die. There was no other option. They were going to kill him no matter what. We read in verses 49 through 50, they thought killing Jesus would save them from Rome, right? But in Caiaphas' prophecy about Jesus' coming death in verses 51 and 52, he spoke about something he didn't understand. You see, in both Caiaphas and God, they intended for Jesus to die as a substitute, as a sacrifice for his people. But Jesus' purpose for his death was not about removing some political turmoil. It wasn't about just keeping their power and influence in their little nation state in Rome. Jesus' purpose for his own death was about removing the penalty of sin altogether. You see, the very thing that is keeping his people from life with him. That's what Jesus' death is about. Did you notice the timing of chapter 12? John tells us it was six days before Passover. Passover's come up a lot in John's gospel. This is the third and final time. The the last 11, 12 chapters of John's gospel, they take place in this last week leading up to Jesus' death. And a huge part of that Passover celebration It involved the feast that meant meant to remind God's people of this meal that their ancestors had eaten the night before they left Egypt and went into the wilderness on the way to the promised land, the main course of which was lamb, a lamb they'd slain and whose blood they put on their doorposts. And that they might escape the angel of death in the tenth plague. Instead of finding death and judgment, they might have life. 
You see, the Passover was never just about rescue. It wasn't just about deliverance. See, in their celebration every year, it was a foreshadowing that the only way that kind of rescue and deliverance could happen is if someone died in their place. See, and somehow, some way, Mary saw that. What the Pharisees missed in, their, in the face of out, their outright prophecy from God, Mary saw clearly as she sat at Jesus' feet, as she fell to her knees in front of him in desperation for her brother, as she bowed at his feet, pouring perfume on them. See, by God's grace, she had perceived what they all had missed. Not only was he going to die, but he was going to do it for her. See, because Mary gets that, because she sees that. There is no price too high to show her love and loyalty to Jesus. There is no service to him that is beneath her dignity. The worst of Jesus is worth the very best she has to offer. While her actions, they often seem extravagant, I can guarantee you to her they felt like the only logical thing to do. Romans chapter 12, it urges us to offer our bodies, our whole selves, all we are, to offer that to God as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to Him. The NIV, it says it's your true and proper worship as a kid. I grew up with good old KJV. and It translates it right as your reasonable act of worship. At the, to Mary, it's like the only, like the obvious thing. Like nothing else makes sense to her. And it's only when you see and when you keep treasuring the fact that the King of Kings died for you that you'll see him as supremely valuable. And the idea of loving him lavishly and unreservedly and wholeheartedly, that will seem to you like the most natural and normal thing to do. You see, and it's Jesus' substitutionary death for us. That's what we're remembering and celebrating every week when we take communion. Reminding ourselves about his body and blood that was broken and shed, not just in general, but for you and for me. So if you put your faith in Jesus, if you trusted him not just to be your Savior, but to be your Lord, the King, where you do for the first time this morning, then during our time of worship, go back and take communion. Do it in joy. There's a table in the back on the left and the right. You can dip the bread and the juice. Take communion that way. But if you're here today and you haven't yet placed your faith in Jesus, you're still figuring out who he is and what it means to follow him, I just want to encourage you, you are welcome here, but hold off on taking communion. God is not after religious rituals and going through the motions, nor is he after your stuff. He's after you. He's after your heart. He wants all of you. He wants your hope to come from him. And so as we sing and as we worship God by remembering the gospel together in song, wherever you are at this morning, I want to encourage you to talk with him. See, some of you are here. And the reality is you are a lot more like the Pharisees than you would like to admit. And maybe you wouldn't say that Jesus is worthless, but he is certainly the thing that's standing in the way of the thing your heart really longs for. Whether that's the idols of power or comfort or control or approval, following him, obedience to him, it runs counter to pursuing that stuff in your heart and in your life. 
And so he feels like a problem to be solved. You're always trying to find the way around obedience to him. How can I excuse it? How can I get around what Jesus' commands? See, the reality is all those things your heart longs for, the things you think will really satisfy and give life, the things that you believe are so supremely valuable. You see, Jesus is better than all of it. He's better than having the most power and influence. He is better than the easiest and most entertaining life. He is, offers you more security than the most, the most absolute control and absolute certainty ever could. He gives you a better identity and standing than any praise or admiration that anyone could ever give you. He is the thing your heart is after. He's better than all of it. See, others of you are here, and you're more maybe like Judas than you'd like to admit. And if you're honest with yourself, the reality is that you tend to see Jesus as a means to some other end. Right? And you're only willing to follow him as long as it just really doesn't cost that much. As long as he doesn't really ask that much of you. As long as it doesn't really affect the reputation you have with others. As long as it doesn't really cost your, your bank account that much. Right? As long as God will answer your prayers now, or at least if he'll just pay you back in the end. As long as it's worth it. And so Jesus might not be a problem, but to you he just ends up being a pawn. He's worth whatever you can get for him. You see, but the Jesus that John is writing this gospel about, he is not a pawn to be used. He is a king to be worshipped and nothing else. You see, he is the author and giver of life the one who created the entire universe and who Hebrews 1 tells us holds it together by the power of his word. You cannot use him for your own ends and nor will he be used like that. You see, real, authentic, saving faith in him. Right? It's marked by this unreserved belief that he owes you nothing, but that you owe him everything. And there is a life there you can't find anywhere else. You see, but that's not the only way that we tend to be more like Jesus than we'd like to admit. See, how's that? Some of us are just prone to viewing sacrificial worship like Mary's as a waste. I remember one Sunday early on we were planning River City Church. I had spent the whole week working really hard on the sermon, and I had stayed up late on Saturday night, like really fine-tuning it, making it as best as it could, and got up early on Sunday morning, went over to Aaron's house as we loaded up his minivan with all the sound stuff and kids' toys, and hauled it over to the Best Western Hotel, and set it up in this little tiny auditorium, and all that work, and all that effort, right? And then like literally, I'm not joking, like seven people showed up that morning. Like three of them were our family members, right? I remember very clearly, like, on the way home from that, just thinking, like, that was such a waste. Why did I just give all that time and effort and energy to that? That was such a waste. I could have spent all that time doing something way better. And I felt like God just really graciously that week met me in that. And in love for me, I think, kept challenging my heart. Brandon, is it worth it because the fruit you think is worth it? Is that why serving me is worth it? 
for us all the time and energy and resources and money and effort is all of it worth it because I'm worth it regardless of the results. And again, God didn't do that like with a club to beat me over the head. He did that in love for me. I'll be honest with you, there have been plenty of Sundays after that one where a Judas would have looked at the fruit of what was happening here at River City and said, wow, that's really a waste. But there haven't been any more where I've seen it that way. And I can guarantee you there were never any that Jesus saw that way. You see, the fruit doesn't make sacrificial worship worth it. Jesus himself makes all of it worth it. He's the treasure. He's the prize. He's not just a means to an end. He's the end. Colossians tells us he didn't just make everything. It says everything was made by him and it was made for him. All of it's about him. See, and there's this invitation that we might that we might look at Mary and her lavish, extravagant worship, and we might reject the idea that any of it was a waste, but instead that we might see her valuation of Jesus as altogether right and appropriate. See, and there's this John. The reason John paints this picture for us of her. Right, so that we might follow in our steps. Right, that we might see Jesus as supremely valuable and live in such a way that demonstrates he is supremely valuable to us. And to do it in a way that others can see. I love how verse 3 ends. Right, John tells us the whole house, it was filled with the fragrance of her perfume. John Piper sums it up this way. He says, heartfelt worship of, of Jesus as king is never merely private. It always spills over into others in one way or another. Always. So the question that I think the passage in John wants us to ask, what does your life reveal you value supremely? What does your life reveal that you value supremely? What is the thing you are most afraid of losing? What is the thing you think will satisfy the most if you have it? And is it Jesus or is it something else? And if we might see his death in our place for us, we would respond as Mary did. We'd see him as supremely valuable and live in such a way that others would see it. As I meditated on the story this week, I I was reminded about a story I remember hearing for the first time when I was in college about a, a missionary named William Borden. He was a guy who was born in the late 1800s and heir to this multi-million dollar fortune, incredibly wealthy family. His mother was a recent convert to Jesus herself, and she led her son to faith in Christ at a young age. But it wasn't until uh, after high school that Borden's faith really began to grow. His parents had given him a year-long trip around the world as his high school graduation present, right? Which you can get a little bit of a glimpse of the kind of wealth that he had, right? And as he traveled across Asia and the Middle East and Europe, God began to burden his heart for the countless people he encountered who had never heard the gospel. 
While in Japan, Borden wrote home about what God was putting on his heart, saying it this way, I have never thought seriously about being a missionary, but when I look ahead a few years, it seems as though the only reasonable thing to do is to prepare for the foreign field. Family friend who had gotten word about Borden's letter and his growing convictions wrote back urging him, quote, not to throw his life away. In response, Borden wrote two words in his Bible. No reserves. Upon returning from his trip, Borden was accepted at Yale. But when he got to college for the first time, he saw that his his faith in Jesus and his longing to worship him was uh, largely unshared by his peers. And so he began meeting with a friend in the mornings to read his Bible and to pray together and to ask that God would renew their campus. And soon another student joined them, another by the end of the, their freshman year, almost 150 students were meeting regularly to pray and study God's word together. By the end of his time at Yale, a movement involved the vast majority of the 1,300 students on campus. Additionally, during his college years, Borden founded the Yale Hope Mission, which sought to tangibly serve those in need near the docks at New Haven and to point them towards Christ. And Borden not only was found regularly serving and giving of his time and effort and energy there, but he used his vast fortune to fund all of the buildings and efforts of the mission. He was their primary benefactor. One of his classmates remarked how although he was a millionaire, Bill seemed always to realize, quote, that he must always be about his true father's business, not wasting time in pursuit of amusements. In his personal journal, Borden made an entry that epitomized the life his classmates witnessed every day. He wrote simply, say no to self. And yes to Jesus. Every time. Upon graduation, he was offered a number of prestigious, high-paying jobs, but instead he opted to attend seminary in order to continue preparing for the mission field. In his Bible, he wrote two more words, no retreats. While at seminary at Princeton University, Borden's calling to foreign missions was further clarified. He heard about a group of millions of unreached Muslims, people in western China, and he felt God burdening his heart for them. Till finally in December of 1912, at the age of 25, Borden ordained by Moody Church in Chicago and commissioned by the China Inland Mission, he set sail across the seas, leaving behind his vast fortune in order to follow God's leading in his life public was astounded at Borden's decision, right? One newspaper headline summed it up this way, millionaire gives up all. But there were no doubts or hesitations in his mind. Sadly, however, Borden never made it to China. En route there, he planned to stop in Egypt in order to spend time familiarizing himself with the Muslim culture and learning Arabic. Yet three months into his time in Cairo, he contracted spinal meningitis, and within a few weeks he was dead. When his mother arrived, she found that while suffering on his deathbed, her son had written two last words in his Bible. Underneath no reserves and no retreats were the words, no regrets. I think the introduction to his biography sums up his life and attitude best. The biographer writes it this way. She says, Borden not only gave away his wealth, but himself. 
in a way that was so joyous and natural that it seemed a privilege rather than a sacrifice. Apart from Christ, there is no explanation for such a life. You see, I think it is so easy for us to look at Mary and William Borden and to see their sacrifices and their lavish love of Jesus. To see it as a life cut short, to see it as a waste. But you can guarantee that Jesus did not see it that way. See, the fruit is up to him, but our love for him is up to us. And my prayer has been that we might see Jesus, not just living for us, but dying in our place. And so we might see him as supremely valuable, like Mary did, like William did. And that in response, we might be characterized by giving all we have and all we are back to him with open hands. And we might do it in such a way that feels so joyous and natural that others might see it as a privilege, not as a sacrifice. The only way that happens is when you see Jesus like Mary did. When you see him not just raising your brother from the dead, but when you see him dying in your place for you. Let that give you life like nothing else can. Let's pray. Jesus, we are so grateful for you. We're thankful for this story God, of Mary's correct valuation of you. I'm so grateful for the reminder this week of William Borden and his life, which so echoes Mary's heart and attitude. I'm so grateful, Jesus, that you do not evaluate, God, our, like you don't evaluate our love for you based on the fruit of it. But instead, you look at our hearts and when we give ourselves to you wholeheartedly, all we have and all we are, Jesus, it is right and good and appropriate to do so. Help us to see that as the truth. Help us to value you rightly as Mary did. And help us to live lives of humble, sacrificial devotion and worship unto you in a way that's joyous and natural. So it seems like a privilege as it did for her and for Borden. We pray. Amen.